Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Chang. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, I'd love a chance to meet you after the service. Uh, again, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. You know, we, uh, as humans, have a surprising capacity to misvalue things. You know, typically we are pretty proud of our ability to gauge how, how much something is worth. You know, we're always looking for good deals. We're cutting coupons. Uh, we're trying to save money. And yet too often, we take the most important things in life for granted. Uh, and too easily, we value those things which ultimately don't matter. I remember learning that lesson as a teenager. Uh, I had lied to my parents I had gone out with my friends when I said that I would be doing something else. And then I was caught. And I remember my parents being disappointed. You know, for them, it wasn't just about the breaking of a rule. It was about a break in the relationship. Uh, there was a loss of trust. You know, I thought that I had just told a lie and I could easily fix that. But in reality, I had altered the whole state of our relationship. With trust in that relationship gone, uh, it, it was hard to, to live in peace in that home. It was hard to move forward without trust. I thought that what was really valuable was what my friends thought. I didn't realize that my parents' trust was way more important. And it would take a long time to repair that relationship Part of our fallenness is that our, our value system is all messed up. We value the wrong things. We, we take for granted that which matters most. You know, if taking our parents or our children or our spouse or all the important people in our lives for granted results in such terrible choices and consequences, what happens when we start to take Jesus for granted, when we start to take God for granted, what kind of loss would we experience then? Uh, this morning, we return to the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is a sermon delivered to these early Christians, calling them not to take their Savior, Jesus Christ, for granted. It seems that these early Christians were starting to grow weary in the Christian race, and so this sermon comes as a call to them not to lose heart, not to give up, but to continue clinging to all that they have in Jesus. And for all of us here in the 21st century, amid all of the troubles and distractions that we face, this is what we also need to hear. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. Last time we were going through Hebrews, we saw in chapter 1 uh, that the writer begins this sermon by giving a glorious description of the person of Jesus and his great salvation. Uh, the author is going to continue to unpack that in the rest of chapter 1, and we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But I want us to begin by looking at sort of his conclusion to this section there in chapter 2. All right? Hebrews chapter 2. If you're taking notes... I have two points. It's kind of two big ideas to walk us through this text. Number one, don't drift away from Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus. And number two, treasure all that you have in Jesus. Treasure all that you have in Jesus. I pray that God would open our eyes to all that we have in Jesus and that we would be convinced that there's nothing better outside of him. All right, so number one, don't drift away from Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We see here that the teaching that we're going to encounter in chapter 1 is not a new teaching. Uh, The preacher here is not presenting new information that these Christians have never heard before. Rather, what we see here in verse 1 is that he is re-presenting what they have already heard. Uh, What these Christians need, then, is to pay much closer attention to what they already know about Christ. They already know the truth, but now they need to remain in it, persevere in it, grow deeper in their knowledge of it. Because the danger that we see there in verse 1 is that we drift away, right? We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The danger of the Christian life is not that you might wake up tomorrow and think, you know what? I'm going to abandon Jesus today. I'm I'm, going to leave the church. I'm going to make a shipwreck of my faith, and I'm going to commit apostasy today. No, no. Sin is much more cunning than that. The way sin works in our lives is through this image of drifting, of drifting away, like a person floating on a tube down a river, right? If you stop paddling, you don't just stay still. No, you're moving, right? You're moving in the direction of the current. You're drifting. And that drift can happen really slowly at first. Think of the zeal of a young Christian, right? He's, he's just come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited to go to church. He rejoices every time he hears the gospel. He's praying throughout his day, walking in fellowship with Christ, discovering all kinds of new things in the word. But then a year passes, a few years, and that zeal begins to fade. He's still going to church, but it's becoming kind of mechanical. He, he shows up to church without much forethought. You know, he goes through his days, week after week, without any serious prayer. Uh, they, he, he used to confess his sins. He used to feel his need of a savior, but these days he, he kind of takes it for granted. Right? He, he knows that he's forgiven. He believes it. Doesn't think much about it. Rather than listening to edifying content, he finds himself turning to sports radio or the latest celebrity gossip. You know, friends, I'm not saying that if you do any one of these things that you're drifting. Because drifting is a matter of the heart, right? Uh, you can be doing these things and yet be clinging to Christ. These are, these are very small things, actually, that I'm, I'm listing. But then again, that's the point. Drift can begin in small ways. And the way that it, that works is that eventually the current will start to pick up. The thing about drifting in the wrong direction is that you begin to build a kind of momentum, begin to go faster in the wrong direction. And the more momentum you have in that direction, the harder it is to reverse back. Until finally you wake up one day and you find yourself so far, so dry, so distant from God. And you wonder, how did I get here? What happened? Or maybe you never wake up at all. And you go over that waterfall. You know, for everyone who has ever deconstructed their faith, who's ever made a shipwreck of their faith, they didn't come to that decision all at once. No, it happened through a process of drifting away from Christ, which is to say that there is no coasting in the Christian life. There's no standing still in the Christian life. Either you are swimming and paddling towards Christ or you are drifting from him. Either you are struggling up that river, swimming against the current of sin and the flesh and the devil, or you are letting yourself be taken by those things. 
I think so often Christians are discouraged because they find themselves struggling and fighting with temptation. And they feel like they're making so little progress in the Christian life. But, you know, I, I think that that fight, that struggle is actually a good thing. It's evidence that there is life in us. You know, a corpse cannot swim up the river. Only a living person can struggle. And knowing that, knowing the reality of our sinful nature, realize that any growth in holiness, any progress, no matter how minute, any progress in being conformed to Christ, well, actually, that's nothing short of a miracle. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Of course, we all wish that we could be done with the fight against sin, but, but I want you to know that fight is going to continue till the day you die. That's never going to end in this life. You're always need to, going to keep moving upstream. Our hope is we will one day be finally saved to sin no more. But until then, our call is to keep struggling, keep swimming, keep moving upstream. Don't drift. I wonder if there are any Christians here this morning who, if you're honest with yourself, you are drifting away from Christ. I think there are at least two ways you can drift away from Christ. Uh, one way is that you drift by, by just moving towards sin, uh, giving yourself license to sin. Rather than holding fast to Christ, you feel the pull of sin. You feel all the p- false pleasures that it offers. You're tired of fighting and struggling. And instead, you're thinking, all right, so what if I just give in this one time? Right? What's the harm? God can forgive me later. That's his job. He'll forgive me later. You know, we, we think it'll be easy to repent later. But in the way that we keep going back to sin again and again, it shows that we have never repented to begin with. All of our talk about the gospel and forgiveness is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. He says this, Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would be grace if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, And here's the worst one, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. When you use God's grace as a license to sin, Jesus is no longer your treasure. No, he's just a relief for your guilty conscience so that you can continue pursuing your sin, which then your sin is your real treasure, right? That's taking Jesus for granted. That is drifting away from Jesus. I think the other way that we are prone to drift from Jesus is through self-righteousness, the, the other side of the coin. Now, in our activist society, this may mean taking up social causes, finding your righteousness in your own works, before, in your own activism. You know, I am always amazed at how alive and well Phariseeism is in our wider culture. You know, that, that may be how you drift from Christ. But I think more likely for this congregation uh, is simply a drift towards kind of a polite, nominal Christianity. Uh, we live in a historically Christian nation. It's possible for us to be Christian in name only, nominal. To go through life kind of respected in the community, giving to the church, avoiding all the really bad sins, being a member in good standing of a church, And thinking that just by doing that, that that's what it means to be a Christian. 
And yet all the while, we are drifting away from Jesus on the river of politeness and respectability. Jesus warns us that on the final day, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? Jesus will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. On the outside, they look like the nicest, busiest disciples. On the inside, that had nothing to do with Jesus. Even though we live in a country that has had a long history of Christianity, realize that true Christianity has always been rare. Uh, it is, true Christianity has always been in the minority. To hold fast to a gospel that condemns our self-righteousness, that devastates us for our sinfulness, that calls us to place our hope in Christ alone, to live in submission to his lordship. You know, there has never existed a culture in the world where that kind of Christianity is the norm. When the writer here says that we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift, he's not talking about maintaining just kind of a nominal Christianity. No, he's talking about following Christ with all your life. Read Hebrews 11 if you want to get an idea of what faith looks like. So to finish that Bonhoeffer quote, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. You know, I think Bonhoeffer here is writing with the same idea that the writer of Hebrews had. If costly grace is what we have received, then verse 3 makes sense. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You know, whenever God spoke in the Old Testament through his angels, through his prophets, the people were accountable for what they heard. Those who neglected God's word would face the judgment of God. And yet the writer here is saying, if that was true for them, how much more for us who have received God's final word in the Son? You know, if, if we drift from him now, if we turn away now, there is no escape of the judgment of God. Well, you might be thinking, well, if, if an angel showed up here and spoke to me, if I actually heard from a prophet like the Old Testament saints, then, then maybe I could be held accountable, right? I've never, but I've never experienced that. Well, that's true, but you've never experienced that. But, but the author's point here is that we have received something better than that. Uh, something the Old Testament saints never had. We have in the scriptures the revelation of the person of the Son of God. This great salvation that we're talking about here this morning was first declared by the Son of God himself. And then it was proclaimed and passed on by his eyewitness disciples who lived with him and saw him and touched him and walked with him. I love how it says here uh, in verse 3 that it was attested to us by those who heard. You know, so that those early Christians knew the apostles. They knew their lives. They could verify their stories. And then that message was confirmed by God himself as he worked wonders and signs and miracles through those apostles. And we're reading and hearing about all that in the book of Acts that we've been going through also here. And God also poured out his Holy Spirit on those who received their message. Again, confirming the truth of the gospel. You know, these gifts of the Spirit continue down to us even today. The changed lives of this room here are God's confirmation by his Spirit 
that the gospel is true. If you're a visitor here this morning, you, you may be impressed, maybe, <laughs> with, all, with our gathering, with our singing, uh, with us sitting attentively here under the word. Let me tell you, that is not because of anything good in us. Uh, if you sense any spiritual life here, any warmth, any fellowship, any nearness to God and love for God, that's only because the Spirit of God has come upon us. He dwells in us through the gospel. All this is confirmation that in Jesus Christ, we have received such a great salvation. And this is what we need to hold fast to, brothers and sisters. This is what we need to remain in, paying much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. Which brings us then to point number two. Treasure all that you have in Jesus. Treasure all that you have in Jesus. To help us pay closer attention to what we've heard, let's go back to chapter one. Uh, Here, the preacher is continuing his train of thought from the first part, uh, the first four verses, that introduction to the whole book. And he's showing how Jesus is infinitely greater than the angels. Uh, Apparently, there was a growing fascination with angels among believers in those days. Uh, It's unclear where that was coming from. Uh, Perhaps it was coming from mystical aspects of Judaism, uh, or perhaps from from the moving in of Eastern religions uh, that had all their elaborate systems about spirits and angels. But actually, this section is not about angels. This section is about Jesus and all that we have in him and how much infinitely greater he is than any creature. If you are a Christian, this passage here is is like a bank statement showing how much you have in the bank, uh, showing you all that you have in your account in Jesus Christ. And so in these seven Old Testament quotations, I want us to consider four treasures that we have in Jesus. Number one, sub point one under point two. All right. We're getting to sub points here. Uh, In Jesus, we have the ultimate proof that God loves us. The ultimate proof that God loves us. Look at verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here in verse 5, the writer here is arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus alone is the unique, only begotten son of God. The writer here quotes first Psalm 2, where the kings of the earth are plotting to overthrow God, to cast away God's rule. And how does God respond? Well, he laughs at them. He mocks them. And then he appoints his own chosen king, namely his son. Uh, This language of Israel's king being God's son wasn't something that David invented there in Psalm 2. Actually, it comes from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, which we read earlier in their service. There, the Nathan prophet, uh, prophet Nathan, uh, through that prophet, God promises David that one of his sons will be established on the th- and the throne of his kingdom would last forever. And then in verse 14, God declares, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so as as David reflects on this king with an eternal throne and this unique relationship between God and this coming son of David, he realizes this is not going to be any ordinary king. No, this is going to be a special son. There's a sense in which we talk about all people being God's children as those made in God's image. We see in the Old Testament that the people of Israel are are referred to as the children of God. Or or the angels even sometimes are called sons of God. Now, there's also a deeper sense in which we talk about all Christians being God's children as those adopted into his family. But when we talk about the relationship 
between the Son, Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. We're talking about a totally unique, in in, in the truest sense of the word, a unique relationship. Jesus, the Son, is the only one of whom it can be said that he is God's begotten Son. David uses this language of begotten, begetting, in Psalm 2, to describe the utterly unique relationship between Jesus and God the Father. You know, begetting, what does that mean? The language of begetting is the language of of someone sharing in the same nature and essence and being of another. You know, uh, my children were begotten of me, right? That that is a faint image and shadow of what we're talking about here. So, so here, in, the, in terms of the Father, everything that the Father is, the Son also is. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Father is God. The Son is God. And yet, at the same time, the Father and the Son are distinct. It's the Father that begets the Son. The Son does not beget the Father. The Father and the Son are carrying out different roles in redemptive history. When we use the language of begetting, was there a point in time in which the Son was begotten of the Father? Well, no. As we said earlier, the the Son shares in the Father's divine essence. He is not a creature. He is God. As we'll see later in this passage, the Son is eternal. So begetting doesn't speak in any way of inferiority or chronology. Somehow this is an eternal begetting. So so what does it mean that the Son is begotten of the Father? Friends, I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, We are talking about the nature of the triune God here. Uh, These are deep, deep mysteries that we cannot fathom. And yet one thing that we can know is that when the scriptures, when God reveals to us that the Son is the Father's only begotten Son, what it tells us is that the Father loves the Son. When we, talk, when we think about that, that language of Father and Son, that is one of the, that's a, a language of deep, deep love and affection. There is no one else in whom the Father is so well pleased, so filled with love and delight. The only begotten Son is the everlasting joy of his Father. This is why I say that in Jesus, we have ultimate proof that God loves us. Because the Father has given his Son to us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. That so there is not a so like of emotional quantity. It's not like God loved us so much. That's not what that so means. No, rather it's a so explaining how God loved the world. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Which, yes, that does blow our minds in terms of how much God loved the world. In the giving of his son, that tells us everything that we could ever need to know about God's love for us. We live in a world full of anxieties and troubles that press in on us. And the worst thing about them is that they cause us to wonder, does God really love me? I've been dealing with this chronic illness for years. I've been praying for a spouse and a family. All my plans and my ambitions have turned to dust. I thought God was in control. I thought God loved me. Why hasn't he answered my prayers? Friend, how how do we know that God loves us? Do we read God's love in our circumstances, in our bodies, by our plans, No, we see it in the giving of his son, his only begotten son for us. In order to save us, he did not just send us his best prophets. He did not send us just his greatest archangels. 
No, he gave us his only begotten son. He gave him up even to death on a cross to save us from our sin that we might be restored to him. Brothers and sisters, do away with any thought that God the Father is like this grumpy, judgmental God and it's Jesus that comes and appeases him and convinces him to put up with us. No, no, no. God the Father loves you so much so that he gave his son for you. And therefore, what other proof could you ever need? And because you can be confident that God has lavished his love on you, all the suffering and disappointment that you've experienced will one day be wiped away. And even now, it all exists to drive you more into his love. Friend, you don't ever have to doubt whether or not God loves you because God has given you his only begotten son. Why would you ever drift away from that? Number two, in Jesus, we have a spiritual protector. Look at verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Look down at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Jesus is greater than the angels because the angels here are commanded to worship him and to serve him. That first passage quoted from Deuteronomy 32 tells of a day of, how, of when God will personally come to rescue his people and to avenge their enemies for them. Well, that promise has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. When Jesus was born 2,000 years ago on a hill near Bethlehem, that nighttime sky was lit up with the glory of God and with the angels. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever angels appear, it's usually not a good sign. <laughs> uh, they often appear in judgment. They're clothed in fire. They're wielding flaming swords. They're bringing judgment. But there, 2,000 years ago, on that Bethlehem hillside, they weren't carrying swords. No, they were wearing choir robes. They lit up the night and they sang with such joy and beauty and wonder that has never been heard here on earth before. When the Son of God came, the angels worshipped. As Peter says, these are all things into which angels long to look into. They are astonished and delighted to see the glory of God's grace that has been poured out on the children of man. And that worship centers on Jesus. You know, the angels of all creatures, they know what idolatry is. They know the unimaginable evil it is to rob God of the worship that he alone deserves. In Revelation, when the apostle John sees an angel in all his glory, he falls down to worship him. And the angel quickly says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Well, for all eternity, the angels worshiped the Son. And with the incarnation of the Son of Jesus, Son of God in Jesus of Nazareth, the angels worshiped more than ever. And with Jesus' ascension to heaven as the triumphant king, the firstborn, that worship continues in heaven even to this very moment. For the angels, that worship doesn't just stop with singing. No, it leads them to service. But how do the angels serve Jesus? Well, we see that answer in verse 14. You know, they're not just sort of waiting on Jesus' hand and foot, like fanning him and feeding him grapes. No, rather Jesus is sending out the angels to serve us. Isn't that amazing? King Jesus is deploying his angels to minister to us, to his people. What does that mean? I'm not sure entirely. But I think it has something to do with the fact that we see, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. 
that there is a spiritual conflict that we are in. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us much of what goes on in the angelic world. There is a world out there with real spiritual beings, with their whole storyline that we will someday perhaps hear about. And yet we do know that that world intersects with our world. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan rules this world. There are demonic things happening in this city, even as we speak. There are clinics devoted to killing babies, not far from here. There are neighborhoods where homicides happen far too often. We live in a society where it is easier and easier for people to destroy their lives with greed and lust and all kinds of other vices. And we are regularly reminded that we live in a world on the brink of war and destruction. And all that struggle spills over into our very own lives as we battle thoughts, evil thoughts and discouragement, temptations and conflicts. Friends, it doesn't take much to see that we are living amid a cosmic struggle. And yet amid all of our anxieties and fears, we know that Jesus sits on the throne of the universe. No matter how much Satan and his demons may rage, Jesus is the commander of the angel armies, and he has already won the battle. I remember once when I was serving as an associate pastor in my previous church, we had been, me and the lead pastor had been there just about a year, and we were super discouraged about how things were going. Uh, I remember one rainy spring, cold spring afternoon, uh, <clears throat> just sitting there discouraged, listing off everything that was going wrong <laughs> in the church. Uh, we, we had family members that were getting like seriously sick, not just your typical like illness, but like strangely sick. Uh, there, there was this sense of hardness in the congregation, people causing dissension, people being resistant to the scriptures. One of the stranger things was that our wives were beginning to be really discouraged and, and they were experiencing conflict. There were these strange misunderstandings that were affecting them. And most recently, we were hearing these rumors from other church leaders in town that were basically rooting for us to fail. Uh, they did not want us to do well in that church. They saw us as a, as a threat for some reason. I remember us just sitting there, and me and the lead pastor sitting there in that room and just like listing these things off. And the more we did so, we began to realize, wait a minute, something deeper is going on here. Uh, we're, we're not fighting here against flesh and blood. This is spiritual warfare. This is Satan attacking a, a good, faithful work of the gospel that we're trying to bring here into our city. Which means what we need is not more strategies or techniques, you know, begin to finagle our way to success. No, what we need is to pray, to turn to Jesus, who sits on the throne, who commands the angel armies, and to ask for his protection, to ask for his help. We, we don't need to lash out at people. We don't need to berate people. No, we need to pray. And that's what we began to do. And it was seeing this as a matter of spiritual warfare, not as a matter of fighting against flesh and blood, that helped us then to say, well, our confidence is not in ourselves, it's in Jesus, right? Uh, our confidence is in God. Warnell Baptist Church, until Jesus returns, we are in the middle of a spiritual war. Our mission is to take the gospel to a city under the dominion of Satan. He has this city under his thumb. People are enslaved to their sins. They are blinded to the truth. The odds are totally stacked against us. But you know what? King Jesus is on our side. And he has every resource at his disposal. He will win the battle. He will gain the glory that he deserves. And we can trust in him. This is how you wage spiritual warfare. You, you don't learn magical words or use holy water or turn to superstition. You wage war by faith in the risen Son of God. 
And so as we send out missionaries, as we share the gospel with our neighbors, as we lead in our homes, as we welcome visitors to our gatherings, we pray, we trust in Christ. We do all this knowing that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And brothers and sisters, we dare not drift away from Jesus, our captain. If we do so, we are hopeless. No, we, we put on the armor of his gospel and we join him in the battle. Number three, sub point number three, in Jesus, we have an unchanging king. Look at verse eight. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Well, in contrast to these angels who are finite creatures, who are servants, we see in verses 8 to 12 that Jesus is the unchanging, eternal ruler. Because that's what God promised to David, isn't it? You know, he, he promised that David's descendant's throne would be established forever. Uh, verses 8 through 9 here quote Psalm 45, which is a psalm of a royal wedding. Here the king comes in victory, uh, in a victory procession over his enemies. Uh, and at the climax of that victory, amazingly, in Psalm 45, is a wedding. The king has come to share his glory with his bride. Uh, it's no accident that Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. But in the middle of Psalm 45, we have this remarkable statement about the king because the psalmist calls the king God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. All right, wait a minute. Is, is this the Davidic king or is this God? The answer is yes. And to make that even more clear, in verse 9, God anoints God, right? God anoints God the king with the oil of gladness. This is all Psalm 45. Clearly the Old Testament envisioned the, the promised anointed king to be the son of David, yes, but also to be God himself. Because only God's throne is eternal. And we see that God's throne stretches not only forward in eternity, but also back for eternity Verses 10 through 12 is quoting Psalm 102, uh, this cry of help. The psalmist prays to God. God hears his prayer. And God doesn't just send his angels to help this man. No, God appears in glory. He looks down from his holy height and he comes to save. So Psalm 102 looks forward to God's personal arrival to save his people. And when this Lord comes, and is none other than the eternal God who created the world, whose years have no end, God comes to save. And this is who Jesus is. Jesus, the eternal, the unchanging one, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, this is who we have in Jesus. He is part of our treasure, the unchanging king. I don't know about you, but the older I get the greater comfort I have in an unchanging God. I recently had an older man remind me that with my youngest child being eight years old, that in 10 years, potentially all three of my kids would be out of the house. That is ridiculous. Uh, in, in, you know, I know now in my 40s how quickly 10 years can pass. And I bet the next 10 will pass by even faster. The older I get, the more I realize that everything in life changes. I mean, I've had some sweet seasons of life 
where I've really gotten to enjoy some really happy things. And yet those things have changed. Those days are no longer here. Change so often means loss. Loss of comforts, loss of loved ones, loss of freedoms, loss of hopes. As we sing in the hymn, Abide With Me, Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. The day will soon come when we find ourselves at the end of our lives. It could be 40 years from now. It could be next week. Either way, all this earth's joys will one day perish and wear out like an old garment. And on that day, we will see that our hope must be in the one whose ears have no end, whose throne is forever and ever. Oh, friend, amid change and decay all around you, don't drift away from the only unchanging one. No, cling to him all the more tightly. Rejoice that you have an unchanging king. When this world is perishing and wearing out like an old garment, turn to Jesus and find him to be as fresh and gracious and glorious as he ever was on the day that you first met him. Now that will be as true as it is tomorrow and today as it will be a billion ages from now. Finally, number four, in Jesus, we have a conquering savior. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is greater than the angels because he alone sits at God's right hand. He alone is the fulfillment of God's triumph over evil. He alone is the conquering savior. The writer here quotes from Psalm 110, which we heard preached just a few weeks ago. Uh, This is one of the most unique messianic Psalms. It portrays the coming king as the one who will execute God's judgment on the nations. No angel could ever carry the mantle of that honor. Only the son is worthy. And yet Psalm 110 portrays the son not only as a king, but also as a priest. He not only conquers his enemies, but he also intercedes for his people as their faithful, eternal high priest. It's through the king's priestly work that Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy, our sin. We, along with the rest of humanity, rebelled against God. We tried to make ourselves our own gods. We rejected God's rule over our lives. We welcomed Satan's lies and bondage instead. And for that, we deserve to be judged, along with all the demons and devils. But God, because of his love, sent his son into this world. He came not as an angel, but as one of us, like a man. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his heavenly father. And in obedience to his heavenly father, he offered his perfect life as a sacrifice for us on the cross, taking our sins upon himself in exchange, giving us his perfect righteousness. And there on the cross, he bore the wrath of God in our place. And yet in doing so, he exhausted God's wrath from, against our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that our salvation has been accomplished, that our sins have been defeated, and the way is open now for us to be reconciled to God through faith in the Son. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what we proclaim to you. By faith in Jesus, turn away from your sins and trust your life to him. And you can have him as your savior. You can have all of this in your treasury. All that we've been talking about can be yours. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You can have it all freely 
by Jesus' costly and lavish grace. If, if you want to learn more about what any of that means, please come talk to me after the service. I would love to help you understand this message more. Today, Sunday morning, October 22nd, in the year 2023, the most important headline is not what's going on in Israel. It's not about the stock market. No, it's the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is sitting at God's right hand. There is the proof of God's love for you. There is the proof of God's victory over Satan. There is God's unchanging salvation for you. And if Jesus is yours, then all that is yours. The main plot line of human history is that God is bringing everything in subjection to Jesus. The gospel is going out to the nations. And by the Spirit, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation are bowing the knee to Jesus. Make no mistake, one day every knee will bow. And the question is, will you bow willingly in worship now? Or will you bow one day in broken defeat and anguish and regret? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but he's not going to be sitting there forever. There will be a day when Jesus will get up from his throne and he will return to be with us. And on that day, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the triumphant king reigning over this universe. Lord, we are your glad subjects. Oh, Lord, have your way in our lives. Lord, forgive us for drifting Forgive us for losing sight of who you are and all that we have in you. Oh God, awaken us to that once more. Lord, keep us near you. Hold fast to us, even as we seek to hold fast to you. Oh Lord, help us even this week to cling to you more tightly and make our lives a bright witness to your reign over our lives. We pray this in your reigning victorious name. Amen. Amen.